Good evening. Welcome to the November 26th regular board meeting of the Shawnee Mission School District Board of Education. Our first item is the Pledge of Allegiance. Would you all please rise? I pledge allegiance to the flag of the United States of America and to the republic for which it stands, one nation, under God, indivisible, with liberty and justice for all. Thank you. Normally we have uh, some wonderful students from one of our elementary schools leading us in that, but uh, as you may have heard, there wasn't school today. So uh, we decided to let them forego the opportunity to join us in the evening, and we'll have them rescheduled for our next meeting. Uh, with that, we'll move on to item 1.03, and that's the adoption of the agenda. I'll seek a motion. So moved. Thank Second. you, Mrs. Goodburn. Thank you, Mrs. Zila. All those in favor of the adoption agenda, please say aye. 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 All those opposed? That passes 7-0. We now move on to item 1.04, which is the approval of the minutes from the November 12th meeting. I'll so seek moved. a motion. Thank you, Mrs. Goodburn. Oh, oh sorry, Mrs. Mack. That's what it was. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Mrs. Mack. Second. Thank you, Mrs. Zila. All those in favor, please say aye. 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 Those opposed, nay. That passes 7-0. Uh, next item is under communications, and uh, it would be the superintendent's report. Dr. Fulton. Okay, thank you very much. I want to start off, first of all, by congratulating Kim Gilman, Hawker Grove Middle School Social Studies teacher, who is recognized as the Kansas Geography Educator of the Year. She was honored for excellence as an educator for her work as part of the Kansas Geographic Alliance and the way she has helped improve geographic education in Kansas. Dr. Richard Lachinko, geography and geoscience professor from Fort Hayes State University, traveled to Hawker Grove recently to present the honor to Ms. Gilman before an audience of the students. So congratulations to her. For the second consecutive year, Shawnee Mission South High School students won the Kansas State EcoMeet final competition. One South team earned first place and another earned third in the contest. These students earned top placement by demonstrating knowledge of Kansas plants and animals. The teams are coached by P.J. Bourne, a science teacher at Shawnee Mission South. Congratulations to both the students and their teacher. The National Scholastic Press Association, or NSPA, has recognized Shawnee Mission students as among the top high school journalists in the country. Multiple students and student publications were honored with prestigious awards at the 2018 Journalism Education Association Fall High School Journalism Convention. The honors included a 2018 newspaper uh, pacemaker winner, the preeminent award in scholastic journalism, presented to Shawnee Mission East High School paper, The Harbinger. And there's a full list of honorees that will be available on our website. Too. So again, congratulations to our students and staff. The Health Partnership Clinic recently presented the Shawnee Mission School District with a Leadership Impact Award. Several Shawnee Mission staff members who have worked in partnership with HPC attended a luncheon. There, Tierney Grazer, HPC board chair, formally presented the, the award to Shelby Rebick, Shawnee Mission School District Health Services Director. HPC and the Shawnee Mission School District have worked collaboratively since 2012 with a common goal of improving students' access to health. Last spring, the first school-based clinic in Shawnee Mission open to provide mental, dental, and behavioral health services at Marion Park Elementary School. So those are 
all nice accolades to our staff. Also on November 13th, as a board superintendent team, we had an opportunity to have a, a mini retreat to review a concept draft addressing both process and community engagement considerations for updating Shawnee Mission's strategic plan. We discussed the importance of having a manageable and inclusive process. We also discussed resource support needs and the importance of taking time to design an engagement process that leads to a long-range vision with a carefully developed plan to realize that vision. Doing so takes time. Our goal is to get the process started this winter with an initial set of recommendations to the board by June. A second phase of detailed planning would then occur during the 2019-2020 school year. The board will have a follow-up retreat on Monday, December 10th to further refine the engagement process. And then finally, I, also, I want to welcome uh, all the parents that are here this evening. Thank you for attending. Uh, we know that you've reached out to board members and also several staff members have uh, talked with you about concerns and issues and possible solutions for addressing technology. We recognize that the use of digital devices is certainly an issue in Shawnee Mission, but it's also a national and probably, when you look at what's happening around the world, a global issue as well. So we want to make sure that we're using tools in ways that are appropriate, and I know tonight in your comments you'll address some of that. Um, a couple of quick comments. We want to uh, make sure that uh, we do, we're, we're thankful to have the digital devices that are available to us uh, for our students, and we recognize that uh, they're great tools for learning, they need to be used appropriately, and very importantly, they also offer up the world of opportunity to our students 24-7, so that even students who may be limited in the resources that they have at home have an equal footing in the learning process with their peers at school. Administratively, we've had some discussions of late, uh, e even actually uh, before the conversation with staff, about the need to have some sort of an advisory group for technology use in Shawnee Mission. My understanding is, is that in 2014, we actually had a technology advisory committee composed of parents, staff, students, and teachers uh, that developed our current guidelines for technology use. And our plan is to re-engage that process going forward so that we can inform both current and future practice in the area of use of digital tools. So, of course, while forming an advisory group is really helpful, uh, some, of the, some of the issues that we run into are best addressed at the, uh, with the principal or the teacher. Others are more kind of building-wide building in focus. So we have uh, our site councils to help with that, along with a tool like an advisory committee that can help deal with uh, more global issues. So we're excited about uh, hearing your thoughts on that topic tonight. And as additional background, I'd like for Dr. Ziegler and Drew Lane, who had an opportunity to meet with you, to just share a few comments about the messages they heard and uh, some issues that they'll start addressing with a technology advisory committee. We hope to get that going uh, this winter, possibly as soon as uh, the end of January. Obviously, we've got a little break in there, so it takes a little bit of time to put it back together. Go ahead. 
Well, thank you, Dr. Fulton, Mr. Stratton, and members of the board, and our guests tonight for the opportunity to share an update. So on November 12th, Mr. Lane and I both had the opportunity to meet with nine parents representing six elementary schools, a middle school, and a high school. And we were able to listen to concerns regarding digital learning resources and Shawnee Mission. From the comments and experiences, I've summarized the concerns into three key areas to share with you this evening. Our takeaways include communication, our parents indicated a desire for a greater degree of communication with respect to how digital tools are utilized to support learning, including lists of approved apps and how children are protected from inappropriate content. The second key area was purposeful use of technology and supervision. How are apps and learning tasks selected for iPads and with a purpose for supporting the learning process? And also guidelines for technology use during non-instructional times, including before and after school, on the bus during travel to and from school, indoor recess use, and as a reward activity when work is finished. Those were a few examples given of areas of concern. And the final area for discussion was in regards to concern for screen time and young children. Mr. Lane and I shared with the group that communication at the school level with teachers and principals is important when concerns arise so that schools can start to work through those, those matters. The content in our meeting was good. Um, it was very much appropriate for school site council discussions where parents, teachers, and principals can identify concerns and work towards solutions. And as district resources, we're happy to support those conversations and be available. We believe technology is a learning tool, but not the only tool to support learning. Educators must make purposeful decisions for how technologies are used to enhance learning while supporting learner engagement and teaching responsible use to our students. A balance in technology use is important given that physical activity and social interaction, including opportunities for communication, collaboration, critical thinking, and creativity are developmentally appropriate for all learners. In closing our meeting, a resolution and a solution was brought forward by our parents that indicated a desire to see increased communication for parents and educators that reinforce digital learning tools as enhancing learning, balancing the need for social interaction, physical activity, and a need to focus on healthy brain development while protecting children from inappropriate content. A key outcome requested was the creation of a digital learning advisory council to include stakeholders that would advise our future planning. I'll let Mr. Lane share. <clears throat> Dr. Ziegler mentioned that a considered point during our meeting was around uh, protecting children from inappropriate content. And I just wanted to reassure um, all board members and, and everyone attending the meeting that that is definitely a core component of what we use in the district security stance. Um, a number of years ago, the district adopted a new security stance as an integrated intentional function of what we do. And content filtering is one of three pillars that that stands on, the other two being data security and cybersecurity. Uh, we maintain those systems. Uh, they're enterprise class systems. They, are, uh, they adhere to industry standards, and they're definitely statute compliant. And I know the statute compliant is kind of the easy one, right? It's, it's community concerns that we probably need to aim for. And so understanding all of those things, this is a very rapidly changing landscape. It changes daily. And... For, for such purposes, we also have two security experts we keep on staff that monitor the health and performance of these systems so that when we do see uh, a, an issue come up or an issue is reported, we're able to investigate that report on it and then, and then mitigate. And then always, because it's a changing landscape, we like to make sure that we're not missing the boat on something. So we try to keep our eyes open for 
uh, new value add platforms or features or functions that we could add there. And to that point, uh, we did do, or we're in the process of a pilot for a parent portal on uh, elementary iPads. And this would allow parents to engage additional restrictions while those devices are at home and on a school time. So those are all parts of, of this. And I just wanted to make sure everyone understood that, that protecting children from inappropriate content is absolutely one of those core pillars on which our district security stance stands. Thank you. So we look forward to hearing parent voice on this and getting some insights in terms of parent perspective. So thank you for that update. And that concludes my report. All right, thank you. Uh, with that, we'll move on to item uh, 2.02, and this is the board report. So we uh, have some updates from some of our board members. I'll turn to uh, Reverend Guy. Any update on SMAC PTA? I was at the board retreat, so I was unable to attend the meeting. I sent a written report instead. Great, thank you. And uh, Mrs. Owsley, uh, regarding the foundation. Um, the only thing to note is that they are switching their their fiscal year from January to December to run with ours and concurrence with ours from July to June. Mm -hmm. So okay. not very exciting. <laughs> <laughs> Important, but not exciting. Yes. That's right. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, Mrs. Zila, an update on KSB. We've got a few things going on. We do. They have the conference. The annual conference is this Friday, begins this Friday through Sunday through the delegate assembly Sunday afternoon. Um, and this year, it's finally in Overland Park again. We've been traveling to Wichita for the last three years for that one, but we are at the Sheridan Hotel this coming weekend. Great. Thank you. And Dr. Sinclair regarding KSB Legislative, which is also busy. Um, the Legislative Committee recommendations for the uh, coming legislative session have been submitted and will be voted on. So our delegate, Mazila, will be voting on behalf of Shawnee Mission on the recommendations for KSB um, advocacy priorities for the year. Mm -hmm. um, one had any other questions or concerns that we could quickly mitigate then? <laughs> well, from a, from a timeline standpoint, so the committee, the legislative committee meets on Friday afternoon and takes one last look at the, the draft document for 2019, and then assuming it's approved at uh, the Friday meeting, then it goes on the floor of the, uh, the, the convention on Sunday. Yes. Great. And so if anybody wants to take a look at that last draft and have any updates, by all means, then pass them on to Dr. Sinclair. Great. Thank you. Great. Thanks. Uh, with that, we'll move on to uh, constituent services. Uh, Mrs. Goodberg. I don't, have, I don't have an update. Okay. We have a meeting scheduled, but I think it might have to be moved. So it's in December. We'll figure out a new date. Great. Thank you. And professional services, Mrs. Zila? Yes, we are moving along with the process, and we should have a recommendation to the board by our December meeting. Great. Thank you. Any updates on social media? No updates, sir. All right, and then we have the legislative task force as well. Um, we're going to talk about that in a little bit. So how about if we pass and move that on down the agenda to Dr. Little's update for us. With that, we'll move over to uh, item 2.03, which is the board finance report. Dr. Fulton. Yes, uh, Mr. Russ Knapp is gonna provide his uh, monthly board financial report. Thank you, good evening. Um, so the board report is presented. If you have any questions, that is as of October 30th. There's no uh, unusual thing to report as of this time. 
Um, so I'm going to talk a little bit about the weighted FTE. So last month I presented to you um, that it was our September 20th was our official headcount. We talked a little bit about our FTE. And since that time, we have been audited by KSDE. We're one of the first ones to get audited each year. And so the numbers that I present are kind of a working document. So the budget continues to change as we progress through the fiscal year. The one thing that does, uh, does not change during the fiscal year is the FTE enrollment. So that's that first line because it's based on prior years. So it's the higher of two of the prior years. So you can see our enrollment decreased 376 FTE based on the, our current fiscal year that we are in. And that's what we presented to you back in August as well. So that number doesn't change. But I guess what I wanted to point out there is that yes, we went down 376, but the base increased uh, from 4,006 to 4,165. So that was able to offset that decrease. So we only really netted $59,000 just on that FT enrollment rose. So it's always important um, that we get that base increased each year. And so right now it is built into the statutes and that just emphasizes the importance that that base needs to increase for school districts like us that are maintaining or decreasing that we have a base increase to help us provide new revenue each new fiscal year. Okay. Um, so I'm going to take you down to the, to the, uh, the bottom, the totals. So in 17-18, which was last year, was, the base was 4,006. Our FTE, our total weighted FTE, because that's what we're funded on, is 41,166.3, which generated $164.9 million in just general state aid and special education state aid. We built our budget for 1819 on the $4,165 base, which um, budgeted about $169.7 million. Okay, so based on the audit, and again, these numbers will change between now and June because special education reimbursement rate is not even finalized until June. So, and even our weighted FTE will change uh, all the way until June, but um, there'll be small tweaks. So right now we would, the scenario that we're putting in front of you is about $169.9 million, which is about $4.9 million more than we received last year in just general and special education state aid. Okay. So how's that relate to 1920? So the budget year that we're going into, um, the FTE enrollment is already locked in because, again, I mentioned it's based on prior year. So the higher of prior year one or prior year two. So we already know our FTE is going to start out at 26,970. So that's a decrease of 44.8 FTE. Okay, so that's money that we will have less than we did in the prior year just based on that. It again is offset because the base is going up $137 to $4,302. Um, so that's what we know as of now because that's a state statute, but we know that the legislators will convene this spring and they'll have the task of meeting the, 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 uh, the Supreme Court ruling on adequacy. So we'll cross our fingers that maybe we'll get some more money there. But as of now, the scenario is $4,302. Um, so when we consider, so the scenario that I put together for you tonight, again, this will change, 
the, the FTE enrollment we know. Um, I left everything else kind of just flat. Uh, we'll adjust those m more towards April, May when we come back for our budget workshop. We'll have more definite uh, projections for you. The one thing we do know is our new facilities drop off considerably because the new facilities is a, is we're grandfathered in. We'll eventually lose that, but you only get it for two years. So some of the, the Benning Hovens that we built, we've claimed the aid for two years and they'll drop off. So what we have left will be uh, Brookwood and Lenexa Hills. So. So yes, so we get the new facility monies, but when it's gone, it's gone, okay? So this scenario that I'm presenting tonight, um, general and special education state aid, we would anticipate $3.8 million in new money for 1920 just based on this weighted FTE scenario. Um, do you have any questions? Questions for Mr. Knapp? Anyone? I'm trying to read faces. All right. Yes, okay. thank you for the update you. information. Yes. We appreciate it. With that, we'll move on to item 2.04, and that's the public comment section of our meeting. A uh, couple of quick reminders and updates on that, and then we'll invite our guests forward. Uh, public comment occurs at regularly scheduled Board of Education meetings to provide an opportunity for individuals to address the board regarding school district issues. Here are a few reminders to, that will help the speakers have a constructive and positive experience when representing when presenting comments to the board. Um, please proceed to the podium when your name is called and share your name, city of residence, what schools your children may attend if applicable, and the name of any group organization you might be representing. Uh, we'll limit your remarks to three minutes this evening and uh, the allotted time will be uh, visible on each of the screens in the room here. In consideration of everyone's time, please select a group spokesperson to represent your interests, or you may pass when your name's called if you feel the previous speaker has expressed your concerns. Written comments or any other materials will be accepted and should be given to the board clerk, Mrs. Wintering, uh, prior, and please provide eight copies if you have something to hand out. And uh, please make your comments behind the podium so we can all hear. Um, if your comments pertain to any item that's on the agenda tonight, then I may ask the superintendent or a designee to address those comments uh, at a time during the board meeting or when it was for board discussion. Generally, responses from board members during public comment will be limited to maybe just some clarifying questions. And with that, we'll ask our first guest to come forward, and it's Gretchen Shanahan. Welcome. Everyone, thank you for your service to our district. We really appreciate it. I'm Gretchen Shanahan. My family lives in Overland Park. I have third grade twins at East Antioch Elementary, which is a great school with a great principal, by the way. I'm here tonight as part of a larger group of parents who are all concerned about the implementation of Shawnee Mission's one-to-one -one digital learning initiative. We would like to thank those board members and administrators who have already taken time to hear our concerns and suggestion to implement the district technology advisory committee. We represent many elementary schools throughout the district and we share a concern that the widespread use of iPads in elementary school is having harmful impacts on our children. Many of the goals of the one-to-one -one initiative were laudable. They were to improve achievement and student engagement, personalize learning, promote leadership and professionalism. After five years though, we as parents have no way of knowing whether these goals have been achieved. Further, we have deep concerns. 
shared by experts in the medical and mental health communities that the widespread use of the one-to-one -one devices, K through 12, is having ill effects. Tonight, we hope to give you, the Board of Education, the broader and the broader public, a glimpse of the challenges we are observing with the one-to-one -one initiative. We believe the district has failed to set appropriate boundaries and failed to equip parents and teachers with the tools and information to manage students' device use. Further, we observe that students across the district are having widely varied experiences in terms of quantity and quality of the time they spend on their devices. Across a wide range of schools, we are asking that the district help us address three major questions. One, is this initiative the best way for our children to learn? Two, is use of personal devices healthy for their brain development? Three, how are our children being protected from inappropriate content on a personal device? With five years experience of the one-to-one -one initiative, it is time for a thorough review. We parents see ourselves as a resource to share our experiences and be part of the solution. Thank you for your time. Thank you. Next up, we'll invite Lori Clapper. Welcome. Thank you. Um, I'm Lori Clapper. I live in Overland Park. I have five children. I have two at Shawnee Mission South, a freshman and a sophomore, and I have three children, kindergarten through sixth grade, who remain at a private elementary school in the area. We took them there after the first year of the technology initiative. I am actually reading what Susan Dunaway originally read to the Board of Education in April of 2015. It's being read on her behalf as she could not attend due to her client's schedule. Hi, I'm Susan Dunaway. I want to address the one-to-one -one initiative. I have two sons in the district and I'm a clinical counselor and neurotherapist. I work with the child and adolescent brain all day long. So I understand the brain. I have done hours of research on the effects of technology on the brain. I want to go on record to say that you will see what you will see if a moderation approach is not used. Educationally, you'll see decreases in comprehension, long-term memory, grades and test scores with an increase in overall student dissatisfaction, and in teachers spending time managing technology and student misuse of technology. Behaviorally and morally, increases in cyberbullying, increased agitation and anger, increases in cheating, and increased multitasking. Mentally, you'll see increases in diagnoses and recommendations for medications, ADHD-like behaviors, students being easily sidetracked, decreased attention span, and impulse control problems. Increases in depression, anxiety, suicidal ideation, and completion. As a current note, think about the unprecedented suicide rate we are now dealing with. What if this was predicted three years ago and we didn't change course then? Wouldn't it be insane to not change course now? So what do I want? Moderation is key. Anytime a lesson can be taught or learned in an analog fashion, it should be. Real books, real paper, real pencils. There needs to be a policy in place at every level with regard to the overall amount of screen time a child can have in a school day. 
My strong recommendation is no more than two hours for the lower levels and less for the higher grades if screen-based homework is, is assigned. No more than one hour of must-be-done-on-the-computer homework, a policy of regular in-services from experts who can get this information to your teachers, and these experts must be non-biased. Required teacher and admin reading in actual book form of some of these titles pertaining to this subject. Actual books need to be available to all students. Allow parents to remove the devices from our children temporarily or as a long-term solution if we encounter problems that cannot be solved otherwise and give our children analog activities and resources during that time. And if the school district cannot guarantee that our children will be protected in this manner, they need to allow us to opt out of this program. Thank you. Thank you. Christine Brush. Thank you. My name is Christine Brush, and I've got three children. My two oldest are at Brookwood Elementary, and my youngest will join them in kindergarten next year. So my concern with the iPads relates to question number two that Gretchen mentioned. Is the use of a personal device healthy for our children's brain development? And my angle here, I'm, I'm concerned that the kids are filling all their downtime and transition time with iPad use. Students, particularly in grades three and above, when they're able to begin bringing them home with them, are using iPads on the school bus, in the gym before school starts, in the hallways waiting for a reading teacher or for the nurse, in the classroom after lunch and before instruction has begun again, and even when walking home from school. I'm concerned about the addictive nature of these little hits of screen time. Kids immediately reach for their iPads whenever they have a free, unsupervised moment. These downtimes and transition times were formerly filled with peer interaction, book reading, drawing, or simply waiting patiently for the next activity. These are missed opportunities for our children. Additionally, this is unsupervised screen time. There isn't a teacher, a parent, or a bus driver supervising this iPad activity. And these transitional times add up. Bus rides alone could provide an additional 30 to 45 minutes per day of unsupervised iPad activity. And to be clear, I'm not blaming the teachers, bus drivers, or principals. This unintentional extra screen time is just the byproduct of giving an addictive device to a large group of young children without clear district-wide boundaries in place. And the answer is not to ask the teachers, the bus drivers, the principals, the parents, to simply heighten their iPad policing efforts. This is ineffective and even impossible in some situations. This is pushing the burden down the line to people who are already taxed. These iPad policies need to be reevaluated at the macro level rather than just tweaked to make those on the front lines jobs even harder. So to conclude, more and more research is coming out, specifically from the American Academy of Pediatrics, stressing the importance of developing healthy media boundaries for our kids. In a recent policy statement, the AAP discusses the importance of mindful media use. I would argue that casual screen time during these unsupervised transition times would not qualify as mindful media use. I'm petitioning for healthy district-wide boundaries for these devices, boundaries that are in line with research, boundaries that support healthy brain development. Thank you for your time. Thank you. Next up is uh, Erica Hoover. Welcome. 
Thank you. Um, my name is Erica Hoover. I live in Prairie Village, and I have two children at Belinda Elementary. Um, and I want to thank you for taking the time to hear us tonight. Um, I take many issues with the district's one-to-one -one digital initiative, um, but specifically tonight I'm here to talk about the flipped classroom. This is a method that is being utilized in my, child, my children's art class, um, and I want to say that this is not about the art teacher. I think she's a fine person. This is about the teaching method and it being used in an elementary school. The flipped classroom was developed for high school and beyond as a way for students to prepare by watching their teacher lecture online before going to class. This would give the students and teachers time to interact during class instead of the teacher just lecturing and the students not having time to ask questions or be engaged in the classroom. This can be an effective strategy for older students. However, I have not been able to find any research on this method being used in an elementary set setting and certainly not for an art class. In addition, it is not being used in the art class as intended. The students are watching the video in class and the implication may be that they should get what they need from the video and therefore, some kids do not feel comfortable approaching the teacher, mine included. So why are children being subjected to a teaching method that has no business being in their school? Is not the student-teacher interaction a precious one that needs to be nourished during their most formative years? I believe it is. I feel like this is a push to use iPads as the district spent so much money on the one-to-one -one initiative. And I also cannot understand why parents were not informed that the class would be taught in this way. This flipped classroom has turned my kids' once favorite special into a class that they really don't enjoy anymore. I do not believe this is the best way to teach elementary students. It is not the best use of screen time, and in fact, I believe it is detrimental to these young children who already look at screens far too much. When the district does institute clear boundaries and guidelines on the use of screens in elementary schools, I implore you to remove all possibility of the flipped classroom being utilized. Thank you for your time. Thank you. Next up, Kevin Morris. Welcome. Thank you. My name is Kevin Morris. I live in Overland Park, and I have three children in the Shawnee Mission School District, two at Trailwood Elementary and one at Indian Woods Middle School. All of our children have been a part of the one-to-one -one initiative since it began. And what we've experienced is that while every teacher handles the iPads and technology differently, one thing that's fairly consistent throughout the years is that most teachers allow the devices to be used for indoor recess and for things like Fun Friday at the elementary school level. Now, things like indoor recess and Fun Fridays offer opportunities for kids to build emotional and social skills by playing board games and doing other imaginative activities that are not mediated by screens. These times offer opportunities for games and activities that improve fine motor skills, cooperation, teamwork, communication. Screens, in my observation, have not facilitated the same sort of development. Instead of building towers and figuring out how to handle it when your friend knocks it over accidentally, our kids spend at least part of their time not face-to-face -face with other kids, but face-down with the screen. And in a different vein, our middle schooler has spent much time dealing with tech support for a school-issued device that's not functioning properly. Tech support time is eaten into what otherwise would have been time for him to connect socially with peers or do homework. In August of this year, the American Academy of Pediatrics released a study called The Power of Play. A quote from that study, uh, media use such as television, video games, smartphone, and tablet apps are increasingly distracting children from play. 
It's concerning when immersion in electronic media takes away time from real play, either outdoors or indoors. The AAP is saying that good old-fashioned playtime is good for kids developing brains, not screens. I understand and believe that technology should play a role in the education of our kids. It just shouldn't be at the expense of true playtime. And instead of leaving this up to each teacher, a district policy could help ensure that playtime isn't replaced with screen time. Thanks for the opportunity to speak. Thank you. Whitney Davidson. Hi, thank you. Uh, my name is Whitney Davidson. I have two kids at Brookwood in kindergarten and second grade. I do live in Leawood. I wanted to um, just thank you for your comments, Dr. Fulton, uh, specifically, and for the opportunity to voice our concerns. I do appreciate and, and am and grateful for um, the desire to create a, an advisory board um, and that that will be developed with the intent of some purposeful decisions. So that sounds great. Um, tonight, I'm going to talk a little bit on iPad um, app use. And what has happened um, this year, specifically, in a few um, instances. And I appreciate the district security stance and hope for ways that it will continue to mitigate the detrimental content um, that I'm going to speak about. One thing that, is, that happened this year was um, the CNN con uh, app is, is on use on iPads. And my, uh, my son has been a part of it. And I have a friend whose son saw um, Kim Kardashian and an and expletive, you know, photo of her and came home and told his parents about it, luckily. Um, and then when I approached my principal about it, he said that CNN shouldn't be on the iPads. And so there's a little bit of disconnect there between what is actually on and what's not. I know that we have like 300 different apps on the, on the iPads in the Messenger, and I think that teachers aren't necessarily aware of everything that could be used and, um, and is utilized on our iPads. And so that makes it also hard for parents to know what is used. Since my kids don't bring them home currently, I don't know what's on there. I don't, unless I go into his classroom and, you know, poke around and figure it out. So it's really hard to, to know that as a parent. Um, instances of the N-word and bleeping out um, cuss words has been happening in um, parents um, that are here tonight. And that was at home um, under kind of a supervised uh, you know, moment, um, and fortunately, the kids didn't have their iPhone, their headphones on, so the parent overheard those things happening on two apps: YouTube, which is you know kids, and um, the stop motion apps. Um, there are ways to locate my child via apps, and I'm not okay with that. I think it's a safety issue. There are apps that are, I believe, gateway drugs for social media, like Seesaw, which our kids really love. But they love the "Did you approve? Did you not approve? Are you commenting?" Um, those types of things. So there's a lot of apps that are kind of gateway drugs, I feel like, for them. Um, I, I don't believe that it should be left to the teachers to try and manage all of the, all of the apps and all of the options for the, for the kids. And, you know, it's just a lot, like, you know, was mentioned before on people on the ground trying to just, like, juggle all of this and what are all the kids in my class doing and what are they researching and what are they hearing and, you know, what's happening during free time, you know, on the iPad. Um, so we just have a few questions that hopefully an advisory board can can also follow up in with who in the district approves of these apps, um, what is the criteria that deem them appropriate, and what is the criteria that deem them educational. They need to be educational, educational, educational. Thank you. Thank you. Next up, Claire Schneider. Hi, thank you for your time. Welcome. Yes. I'm Claire Schneider. I live in Overland Park, and I have three children at Trailwood Elementary, a fifth grader, a second grader, and a kindergartner. 
And one of the reasons I'd like to see a technology policy in place at the district relates to the impact the use of the devices have on brain development. Two of my children struggle with mental illness. My oldest child has ADHD. She struggles to stay focused on her work, and using the iPad provides many opportunities for distraction. Because she has ADHD, she has an increased chance of having a device addiction because her brain craves the constant stimulation an electronic device can provide. She works really hard and does really well in school, but every year I notice it gets harder for her as the kids start to find new and exciting apps and different websites that can take their attention. Um, my eight-year-old has had anxiety since he was a toddler. Uh, he's been in therapy since, off and on since he was five. Um, I've done a lot of research to find ways to help him succeed and one day become a confident adult. Uh, I found studies that show the more electronic devices are used to communicate, the worse social anxiety gets um, because the kids aren't getting the face-to-face -face interaction um, that helps overcome that. Um, social media is also a struggle for kids with anxiety and people with anxiety. Um, we're constantly looking for approval and comparing ourselves to others, and social media is a great source of both of those things. I see this already when he uses Seesaw, because he says, did you see what I posted? Did you like it and comment on it? Um, my kin kindergartner is considered neurotypical with no mental health diagnosis, um, but while looking into ways to help my older two children, I found many articles stating that the more a child uses technology, the more likely they are to struggle with mental illness. Um, so I'd like to protect him from these battles as well. Um, I wanted to share my family's story tonight uh, because it is something that a lot of people don't talk about, um, but I wanted you guys to be aware of another angle that the iPads affect. Thank you. Thank you. Katie Maggio? if I said that wrong. Uh, no, that was right. <laughs> Depends on northern or southern Italy, Maggio or Maggio. There you go. <laughs> um, good evening. I'm Heidi Maggio. Um, I live in Overland Park, Kansas, and I have five boys. Um, I have a, we're at Oak Park Carpenter Elementary. I have a fifth grader, a f um, I'm sorry, a sixth grader, a fourth grader, a first grader, and then I have twins that will be in kindergarten next year. After asking multiple times for my, sixth grade, my sixth grader to be able to take pencil and paper tests in all subjects, he was finally given a social studies test with traditional pencil and paper about three weeks ago as all other students were to take the test on their district iPads. When my son came home that day, he's a sixth grade boy, right? Not in, school's not on his first agenda to talk about when he comes home. He was excited to tell me about his social studies test. He said he felt so calm and relaxed when taking it and was so excited to get his results back. He said that normally he has to bounce his leg, fidget, or move around a lot while working on the iPad, and that he was able to sit still, focus, and actually concentrate on the test instead of being distracted with pinching in and out, using the functions of the iPad, like the pencil and the pinching in and out and choosing your highlighter, or finding even his place on the screen when he's pinching in and out. He has commented several times since then about how he feels more calm and more focused when he can work with pencil and paper like it's a privilege for him to work with pencil and paper. I'd estimate that around 90% of his classroom work and homework is on the iPad, whether it's worksheets that have been scanned into Notability, 
or curriculum that is formatted for the iPad. On top of the cumulative time spent on the iPad within the school hours, his class is also required to spend an additional 30 minutes per day, which adds up to two and a half hours a week on the iPad using the app Redbird for math um, help. This time is graded. If they don't meet the time requirement, their grade gets docked, regardless of their internet connectability at home. My son was showing that he was two grade levels behind in Redbird, not by district curriculum, but by Redbird, and his teacher told him to spend more time on Redbird to catch up with his peers, but never offered any extra help or attention with curriculum. My concerns address questions one and two that Gretchen stated. Number one, is the one-to-one -one initiative the best way for our children to learn? And number two, is this use of personal device healthy for our children's brain development? Thank you very much. Thank you. Ms. Adrian Maples. Uh, first, I'd like to say thank you to Dr. Fulton. Thank you for the board, to all the board for listening to us. I also greatly appreciate Liz and Drew for listening to us and uh, addressing the advisory committee. And also Drew talking about um, utmost priority is protecting our children. I'm Adrian Maples. I live in Overland Park and I have one child, a little girl, in second grade in Shawnee Mission School District. With the one child alone, I cannot keep up with all the technology and how quick it changes. Um, originally, I actually was not at all concerned about the one-to-one -one initiative because I can see the great benefits in giving our children access to technology and I can see it as a great resource when we have appropriate boundaries and guidelines in place. And I assumed that the district knew more about all of this than me because I don't have time to do this research um, when they handed my kindergartner an iPad. I wasn't concerned. And then a close family friend of mine gave me a warning cautioning me about a nine-year-old girl, a playmate in my neighborhood, who hangs out with all of the young children. She's nine, and she was accessing porn on her student device, yes, on her iPad. Not just at home, not just her mom's house, or her dad's house, or her grandma's house, or the babysitter, everywhere she went with her device, she was accessing porn. Now, I know that Drew has spoken that we, uh, protecting our children is the utmost priority. We want to make sure that they don't have access to this kind of content, which is great. Um, but how are we going to keep up with that? That's my concern. Uh, you know, I'm sure that this child up the street from me, I'm sure that she wasn't the one that figured out how to break the security. I'm sure it wasn't her. I know this kid. I'm sure someone else showed it to her. But all it takes is one kid figuring out how to break the system. They show everybody else and you got a problem on your hands. So that's my big concern. That was what I wanted to address. Super fun topic to talk about. Um, but how are we going to keep up with this? Technology moves so quickly. It's a paradox of progress. My kid is going to be much faster on that iPad than me. She's going to know how to break into things that I don't have a clue about. They're already doing it with these apps. They have a ridiculous amount of apps on their iPad. I don't even know what they are. My kid's in second grade right now. She's not currently bringing her iPad home with her. But when she does, it's going to be on the charger all night. I'm going to have control over that iPad in my house. I'm a little concerned about what these kids are doing at school. Really, really concerned that some of them are able to break your security protocols and access some really awesome things. Thank you for Thank your time. You. Thank you. Uh, Erica Franz. 
Hello, my name is Erica Franz, and I live in Overland Park. I'm a mother of four. I have a kindergartner and a fourth grader at Briarwood Elementary. I have a seventh grader at Indian Woods Middle School and a freshman at Shawnee Mission South High School. And this is our family's first year full-time in the district because we spent the previous eight years at a local private school with very minimal technology use in the classroom. Despite having minimal exposure to technology, all of my children have very good grades. So we have experienced education without technology and with the one-to-one -one initiative. I'd like to address whether this is the best way for our kids to learn, and I am not convinced. I'd specifically like to speak to the usage of MacBook laptops in the middle and high school classrooms and the VPN. Daily in the classroom, middle and high school children are using class time to watch movies, play games, text each other, and listen to inappropriate music, all of which can be easily seen by my children and other students who sit directly behind these students, and it is very distracting. This behavior detracts from healthy learning behaviors like note-taking, studying, paying attention to teacher instruction, and engaging in classroom discussion. It is very easy to cheat while taking an online test in the classroom using a MacBook laptop. How do they do it? With the very technology handed to them by the district. Students easily screenshot images of the test to their friends or simply look at the easy to see neighboring screen of the child sitting next to or in front of the student. This is extremely distracting for hardworking students who do not want others to cheat off of them. All of this happens without parental knowledge and under the noses of even the best Shawnee Mission School District teachers. Some students, like my own child, actually do score better on a paper test. My own daughter made a decision on her own that online test taking is not the best way for her to learn. She took she talked to all of her teachers and now only takes paper tests, and that decision improved her grades. Middle and high school students know that the use of the school-issued technology is the only way to successfully complete 90% or more of their homework through the use of the district's virtual private network, or VPN. While away from school, the VPN often does not work, and middle and high school students are told by their teachers that VPN malfunction is not an excuse for homework not getting done on time. What are they supposed to do when all of their homework is accessed and turned in through the VPN? I have yet to hear a solution from anyone about what to do to fix this. Nearly every morning before school, there are long lines in the library where middle and high school students have to request repairs for their VPN before school starts. No, they are not studying or checking out books. They're trying to get their technology working so they can do schoolwork that day. This causes unnecessary stress on students and parents. Thank you very much. We appreciate your comments. Thank you. Next up, Tara Hensley. Thank you. Um, thank you for having us this evening and listening to our comments. And I really want to thank all of the parents. This is an incredible turnout. And um, I want to tell you all that while you may not have students currently in school, K through 12, we do. And our voices are so important. Um, my name is Tara Hensley, and I'm a parent of two students at Westwood View Elementary School. I live in Westwood, Kansas. We walk to school. Although our kids want us to drive, we live right next door to the school. <laughs> I think we are the smallest elementary school in the whole district. <clears throat> I work as the director and founder of a health organization called Brea Health. As an advocate, educator, and consultant, I'm brought in 
to assess and give voice to where evidence-based knowledge and care is not being practiced. In addition, I help staff and teams communicate and notice how actions and practice are impacting people. A practice that has significantly impacted our lives and our children's lives has been the one-to-one -one initiative. According to the annual financial report of our district, there are approximately 30,000 devices provided to students, teachers, and administrators in the district. The district has not only moved away from traditional labs, I actually was the uh, very first uh, Shawnee Mission School class to get a computer lab. We've moved away from these computer labs, and, and in that, with lack of review for need and relevance, and we've also moved away from consent. Today, of all of the different problematic issues that you've heard from these speakers, I'm going to be talking about and addressing the lack of consent. Four years ago in 2014, our child was in the first class to be a recipient of the one-to-one -one initiative. Our children have been, from the beginning, a test group, an experiment, per se. And this experiment, this mass adoption, has been enacted in practice without parental consent. 50 feet from the elementary school, we have a really small, what we call the mini park. And we have to sign a permission slip for our children to walk 50 feet over to the mini park to participate in off-school property. We inherently know through science, that more outdoor interaction and play is more than beneficial to any additional time indoors. Every action that our children participate in requires consent. In the last four years, you have, without consent, given each child grades K through 12 an electronic device that reduces and reduced recess time. In 2014, we were given a form requiring that we seek independent insurance to cover this device that we had not agreed to. In fact, in our home, we do not allow personal devices for our children nor adults. While this initiative has intention for growth and innovation, it was introduced without the necessary consent and input which should be required when establishing a digital culture that impacts the entire human system. Thank you very much. Thank you. Appreciate it. Christy Carador. Hi, thank you. My name is Christy Carador. I have four children, three at Westwood View in grades fourth, third, and kindergarten. Um, I um, am a psychologist by training. I'm a researcher. I'm a professor in uh, preventive medicine and public health at KU Medical Center where I study obesity. And I just want to add a couple comments. Um, the first being that my concern really comes from the lack of science that we have on the impact of adding these devices one-on-one -on -one to children of school age. Uh, several folks have commented on the uh, American Academy of Pediatrics guidelines. Those guidelines were not based on science uh, of screens in school. They were based on use of screens, including TV, video games, iPads, phones, outside of school. And the guideline, of course, is less than two hours per day. Uh, no screen time is the guideline for children under the age of two because we know it has impact on social cognitive development. Uh, so when I look at our children, uh, I see them as sort of the guinea pigs of this era. Um, I'll share just a couple of things that have caused me concern. My uh, fourth grader has only brought his iPad home from school one time. That was in the third grade when he was doing a video project. He brought it in and he was getting CNN pop-ups on his iPad about President Trump, negative uh, pop-ups about the president. 
Uh, I emailed the teacher about it. She said he's supposed to disable those things. I think the question is, do our children know this is not school material when they're getting it at school on a school-only device? Do they, are they able to decipher what am I supposed to pay attention to, what am I not supposed to pay attention to on this device? Uh, the other thing I'd like to share is uh, my daughter's kindergarten teacher recently posted a picture on the new social media app for parents of my daughter and five other children at her table. The lights were off. They all had headphones on. The only thing you could see is the glow of the iPads shining on their faces. Uh, it was definitely meant for educational purposes. I don't I'm not necessarily saying it was a negative thing, but the image spoke a thousand words in terms of the impact that it's having on uh, social interaction in the classroom. Uh, so uh, I, I think not that the district can address the science gap. I just think we have to move forward with a lot of thoughtful uh, policies and best practices given the gaps that we have in the science. Thank you. Thank you. Kim Whitman. Thank you. My name is Kim Whitman. I live in Overland Park, and I have two children at Trailwood Elementary, and I am the last speaker in our group. You guys have survived us, and we really appreciate you listening to all of our experiences. Uh, I'm going to share what we believe to be the best next steps. We refine these goals based on our meeting with Dr. Ziegler and Mr. Lang. First, our community deserves a comprehensive review of what we've learned the past five years with the one-to-one -one initiative. A full review would include opportunities for anonymous input from parents, educators, students, and administrators through a survey, as well as in-person listening sessions for those who wish to share feedback publicly. We need to study how iPads and MacBooks are being used at different grade levels, for what subjects, for how long at school, and how long at home, and to examine how gains or losses in performance and well-being are correlated with device use. Second, we need an advisory committee. We are excited to hear from Dr. Fulton that uh, the administration is already addressing this. The committee not only needs to be comprised of parents and educators, but also community experts in child development to create and update guidelines for device use. This cannot be a process that occurs inside the district central office. It must be a community conversation. Any experts who stand to profit from the one-to-one -one initiative should be excluded from this advisory group. The new guidelines need to create boundaries around the three concerns shared in our introduction. One, we need boundaries to ensure that device use enhances learning. Two, we need boundaries to protect healthy brain development and essential childhood learning experiences like play, physical engagement, and social interaction. And three, we need boundaries that protect our children from inappropriate content at school and at home. Additionally, these guidelines need to be district-wide so that every child is protected. There are numerous inconsistencies between buildings and each building principal should not be expected to implement their own guidelines. Third, the district needs to provide additional support to teachers, students, and families. Our teachers need professional development to learn the impacts of screen time on a child's developing brain. Our teachers need to work without being pressured to utilize devices in place of paper and pencil. Our students need typing classes and keyboards in upper elementary grades and a functioning network for using devices outside of school. Families need the district to provide charging infrastructure at all elementary schools for all devices. We need the option for children to leave devices at school. 
We also need the ability to shut down devices outside of school hours. Um, I'm aware, as Mr. Lane shared, that Trailwood is piloting an app that does allow for these parent controls. Finally, as Dr. Ziegler said, we need improved communication district-wide. Current and new guidance should be promptly posted to the district's website along with a list of approved apps and information about how those apps support the curriculum. We are very excited for the advisory committee to start addressing these issues immediately. We look forward to working with the district administration to improve the health and well-being of all students in Shawnee Mission. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you. And thank you to all those who came forward. We appreciate uh, hearing your input as individuals. It's very important to us to uh, get that feedback. So, so thank you for that. I'll turn to Dr. Fulton for any additional comments. Well, you spent a great deal of time formulating very thoughtful comments. Thank you for that. It would be helpful, if, if you so desire, to get a copy of your comments. We don't need names on the papers. So. But that would be helpful because you cited uh, research that we can use as we begin the process of putting together an advisory committee and thinking about how we go forward in our use of thoughtful use of digital tools, um, both in terms of district guidelines, but also thinking about it at the building level as well, as we do work with our site councils and other improvement processes. So thank you. All right. With that, we'll move on to uh, subject area three, which is our uh, 3.01 the academic program evaluation, and I'll turn to Dr. Fulton for introductions. Okay, I'm going to, uh, Dr. Hubbard is going to provide an overview along with her team of uh, some of our achievement scores. It's important to note this is the third in a series of reports. We've talked about uh, ACT test results, we've talked about advanced placement, and now we're gonna talk about the Kansas test results along with some other data. It's all yours. Oh, I, I might add this too. So we've talked about academics up to this point. At a, at a future board meeting, I believe in January, uh, we'll be also talking about some of the social-emotional student success indicators, things like discipline data and so on. And that is all a matter of rolling it out one meeting at a time. If we did it all at once, we'd be here for hours. So, And we're still putting some of that data together as well. Um, so thank you for the opportunity to share the academic report. Um, I want to take this opportunity, especially, I would appreciate that. Um, this team is boots on the ground, does a lot of work with teachers, uh, parents, secretaries, everybody that impacts kids on a daily basis. And um, I am very lucky to be surrounded by such amazing teachers. So just recognize them tonight, as well as you're going to hear from several of them as we talk through this report. So um, just quickly, I want to I talk about the strategic plan. So the current strategic plan was developed in 2014 as a 10-year plan, as you all know, and many of you participated in, in being part of that strategic plan. But tonight we're going to specifically focus on the academic piece of that. In the report that was submitted to you and is also available online for anyone who would like to see it, there were 20 academic goals as part of that strategic plan. Um, in those 20 goals, we have accomplished many, many things since 2014 and many things that have led us to where we are today and will also um, really guide us in our future planning in the next strategic plan. So we're excited about the accomplishments of those goals as we move forward. Um, the one thing that is really, um, I'm going to move this here, oops, 
That's all right. One thing that is really um, apparent in the current strategic plan is it's focused on processes. It's focused on a lot of different processes to get us to places. It does not have a huge focus on student outcomes. And while if you dig through every SMART goal, you're going to find student outcomes that were there, but that wasn't the focus of the plan. The focus of the plan was really on process. So our team has really been working with Dr. Fulton and the cabinet to, to move to student outcome processes versus, or student outcomes versus process. So in talking through that, we really want to look at three very specific things. And I'm not going to read those to you, but you're going to see something specific in each one of these. Student improvement, student learning, and how it um, correlates to Kansas CAN and success ready graduates, which is extremely important in our work moving forward. So I think you will hear through this team, pro team presentation the focus on student outcomes and where we're headed in the future. So with that, I'm going to turn it over to Pam. <coughs> I'm just going to briefly introduce the learning vision, which has been a focus for us this year in working with their administrators and then them working with their uh, school teams. And so student learning is at the heart of the learning vision. And so as educators, we must ensure that all of our students are provided this quality education across the district, and we want them to then be prepared for college and career-ready success. So there are five key components that my colleagues are going to talk about, um, curriculum, instruction, PLC, which you may know as professional learning communities, assessment, and RTI, which is response to intervention. And these components do not happen in isolation. It's a very fluid process that all of these um, are working together and staffs are working together. And the vehicle to get us there is that professional learning community that um, have been implemented at all of our schools. And so Dr. Gilhouse is going to talk more about the PLC. Good evening. You're going to see four questions that are really essential with regards to professional learning communities. Um, these are questions that educators need to ask each day and reflect upon daily. Uh, professional learning communities aren't one more thing on the educator's plate. I mean, they really are the plate. And so what they enable uh, educators and teachers to do is to take everything that they have on the plate and be more effective and more efficient within what they're doing in the classroom. Professional learning communities allow educators to reflect daily and throughout the year instead of like three or four times a year at professional development day. It's continually ongoing. It continually reflects on best practices by our teachers. It allows us to examine data on a regular basis. It helps teachers strengthen their weaknesses and share their strengths with other, with other teachers teachers. Um, I do believe that when our teachers are at their best, our students will be at their best. And ultimately, that's the ultimate outcome that we want for all of our students. And I do believe that professional learning communities is the vehicle to help us get there. Curriculum is an extremely important component of this process. Uh, in fact, Robert Marzano, many of you uh, probably recognize the name, is a leading thinker and researcher in the field today has said that creating a guaranteed and viable curriculum is the number one factor in increased levels of learning. Uh, by guarantee, we're talking about identifying the focus uh, that we're going to make sure all students get. And viable refers to the time and structure in place to be able to, to see that that happens. Uh, throughout the district, our teams, uh, led by curriculum coordinators who are back here, extraordinary group of people, by the way, uh, have been prioritizing standards, finding those areas of focus, and then placing them in curriculum maps. So if we could go to the next slide, please. Uh, we've got here an example of a curriculum map and the kind of information that it provides and the focus it provides. Um, this happens to be from a fourth grade math. 
Uh, it provides the, the structure, the, how much time it should take, what the essential understanding is that students need to take from it, some resources, and the identified priority standards so that teachers know where the focus needs to be and what we need to guarantee for all students. Uh, and it also helps with our RTI process. But of course, the, the map itself is just, it's a, it's a document. It only becomes alive with instruction. And that is uh, the next topic. So the next few slides really are about, uh, once you've identified the standards uh, and identified your priorities, how those then play out in the, at the teacher team level. And so this really uh, accentuates the learning cycle or the teaching and assessing cycle. And so what that is basically is after we've identified those cadres, we've identified the priority standards, uh, teachers unwrap those, break those down into a set of essential skills, and then teach and reteach those to mastery, those priority standards, those essential skills, uh, while being able to analyze uh, assessments as they go um, to ensure that all students are mastering those, uh, those essential or those priority standards. But, uh, this, this is... Um, how we have uh, begun to change some of our RTI, the way that we look at RTI. And so, again, what you'll see here is in the past, that's really looked like a, a pyramid flipped the other way. So uh, the, the pyramid is inverted here. Uh, but what it shows is that the teacher team responsibility, so again, over there on that right-hand side uh, of the pyramid, you'll see where teachers, that's where that teaching and assessing cycle is taking place, identifying priority standards and teaching and reteaching. And then on the left side, we talk about uh, there's a school-wide team that helps to work through things like social-emotional issues, remedial skills, skills that students are missing from previous grade levels, those types of things. And so it's a way that the entire school community comes together to serve the needs of, of all students. And as we talk about assessment, we really talk about the importance of students being able to set goals, um, to meet some of those goals, teachers helping them to identify goals. So assessment really, instead of to, is an assessment that helps students learn, becomes more student-centered. So students understand what it is they need to know and be able to do and can self-assess and say, yes, I got that, no, I didn't. So it really gets students involved and invested. And then finally, that assessment system has to be balanced. And so uh, tonight you'll, you'll see some Kansas assessment. Those are those things that fall up at the top, the standardized tests, the more benchmark assessments. Uh, what you see at the bottom, those formative assessments, end of unit and common formative, those are the in-class assessments, the things that take place every day that are ongoing so that, that teachers and students can see where they are in terms of a progress toward their learning. And so uh, I believe Dan is going to now talk about Kansas assessments in particular. I get to talk about the cake topper that was on the on the top of that that hat. Um, of course, none of this discussion is really complete without really talking about outcomes that Dr. Fulton and Dr. Hubbard mentioned. Um, this I'm going to provide just a brief, very brief overview of the Kansas Assessment Program in part because the uh, the latest results were recently posted on the uh, KSD website, the report cards. Uh, the Kansas Assessment results are probably the most transparent of all and recognizable of all the student outcomes. <coughs> A lot of detail, additional detail on, on the on the report cards. Um, just to, uh, for a note here, the Kansas Assessment Program encompasses uh, assessments in English language arts and math, um, science at certain grade levels, history government at certain grade levels, and it also includes a, an, an English language proficiency assessment for students whose first language is not English. So there's a wide variety here. Um, well, today we're going to just uh, focus on ELA and math. Um, when students um, uh, receive a report, 
uh, they receive a score. It's a range of 220 to 380. Um, it's actually this scaled purposely on a, on a scale that uh, doesn't look like a percent correct. Um, and, then, and then they also receive a performance level of 1, 2, 3, or 4, which is uh, um, interpreted as an indicator for whether or not students are on track for um, uh, future success in, in uh, post-secondary programs, uh, college and career. Uh, if we go to the next slide, the, this is uh, a quick overview of the last two years of the percent of uh, Shawnee Mission students uh, at each of those four levels and Kansas students at each of those four levels in 2017 and 2018. Um, the, the goal, of course, is to, is to uh, increase uh, students at those higher levels and decrease students at those lower levels. And you can see that uh, Shawnee Mission students um, have a higher proportion of students at levels three and four compared to the state and, uh, and, and lower percentages at levels one and two. Uh, looking at the next slide, um, this, and there's, there's a lot of information here, so, um, and like I said, the, the details are also available on the KSDE report card, so on the next snow day, when you're <laughs> bored and looking for, for something exciting to do, um, that information is publicly available that, that you can certainly explore on the site, and the URL is in the report. Um, and this, uh, again, has comparison of students by uh, various uh, subgroups of students, racial and ethnic groups, and uh, Lunch status, English language learners, students with disabilities. Uh, the lighter bars are Shawnee Mission students, and the darker bars are um, state percentages. And again, in, in, in most of our subgroups, we have a higher proportion of students um, in the blue with level fours and threes, a lower proportion compared to the state in the levels one and two. Uh, looking at the next slide, and this is in English language arts across all grade levels. Um, as you glance across the bottom, the, you see some numbers at the bottom. That gives you an idea of how many students are in those groups approximately um, for each of those group sizes, too. So it gives you an, a, kind of an idea, a rough idea of how many, uh, for example, how many uh, students are, are in the free lunch group, how many ELL students are in those, in those groups as well for the district. Oh, I have a pop-up later. Able to. Okay. And mathematics. Um, it, the, the picture is very similar. Um, we have a higher proportion compared to the state of students in the level three and, and level four area, um, and, and lower percentages compared to the state in those uh, ones and twos. And then if we look at the subgroup data, um, again, compared to, if we're comparing district to state, um, our students are performing, uh, outperforming them in, in, each of these, in each of the student groups. Uh, we do have some gaps. Um, that we need to continue to, to, to look at and, and, uh, and reflect upon as we do some future uh, planning and strategic planning around, around this data. So what's, what's ahead for the future? So we've identified, as you can see on the screen, a few key areas of focus that will help frame the discussion for the future engagement and strategic planning process that Dr. Fulton mentioned earlier. But certainly, clearly, first and foremost would be around um, meaningful student outcomes. And so we'll continue to use those data points. Um, you can see some listed there, ACT, which is a, a good indicator of college um, success. And then, of course, developing some end-of-course exams, formative growth measures, so that we can ensure 
sure that our students are meeting those successful outcomes along the way to ensure that we are preparing them for the future. Um, looking at um, expanding and further developing around our career uh, readiness areas. So thinking about um, new expanded programming in things like HVAC and advanced manufacturing, which is a highly technical area that's not just on our radar, but is actually a discussion point across the metro area for workforce development. So looking at growing and expanding those to prepare students for their future. And looking at making sure that um, as we're planning for our special education services, um, that we're able to identify, attract, and retain highly qualified, excellent special educators. And we're starting to look at some staffing um, models to include support for teachers who may be interested in obtaining special education certification, as well as exploring some grow your own, um, inspiring young future special educators within our district. And so we're beginning those discussions with universities around um, what those those plans could look like. Certainly um, funding sources, so continuing to evaluate those uh, resources to support that. And then exploring an adult, exciting adult completion program that could benefit the broader community. So as you can see, many of these are focused on getting success-ready graduates, and that's something that um, Dr. Ziegler will expand on. Next slide should be familiar. As you know, we are in our second year of our KISA, our Kansas Educational Systems Accreditation process. And a tenet of that process is making sure that we're all aware of our Kansas State Board of Education vision and the Kansans CAN um, process. So what I've got displayed for you this evening is the Kansas vision for education right from our State Board of Education and, and KSDE. And talking about that portrait of what a successful high school graduate looks like. We've talked a lot about academic development this evening, but it's not just about academic preparation that builds that successful graduate that we know is ready to enter the world when they leave us. We're also needing to focus, and that, that future focus slide talked about some of these things that are non-academic skills that we know are vitally important. And some of them we've previously talked about this evening. Cognitive preparation, making sure that our students know how to persevere through a task when things are hard, that we stick with it and that we can succeed, that we're developing an awareness and opportunities to engage in technical skills while we're still at the high school level. As you know, we've been focused in building industry-recognized credentials and some of those stackable credentials for our students before they leave us, that they can obtain those skills while in high school. Employability skills, some of those things that we've talked about, communication, collaboration, being able to work and understand how to work with diverse populations are important skills that workforce-ready um, students need to have. And then civic engagement, understanding the importance of being involved, civically engaged, are part of that total picture, that total portrait of a graduate. So we know that there's more than just the academic component, and all of these are part of the discussions that we're having moving into strategic planning for our future focus. As we end, can't think of a better picture than that vision of one of our recent graduates. It's one of my favorite pictures that showed up on the website after this May. And that young lady had an opportunity to not only earn her diploma in Shawnee Mission Schools, but she was part of the first class that came through the Center for Academic Achievement, had the opportunity to participate in her medical health sciences pathway. So when we talk about that vision for a graduate, a success-ready graduate, there's a picture right there. And so we're on our way, and that is where we'll conclude our presentation tonight with the academic portion of our report. We stand as a team ready for any questions that you may have. Great, thank you. I'll turn to board members for any questions. 
Yes, Mrs. Mack. You want to go first? No. Sinclair. <laughs> um, thank you for this presentation. Thank you for all of you being here. And as far as civic engagement, I think we have a great group of parents are, that are modeling that tonight. I just hope you get every areas of the district um, as a part of that initiative. I just want to say that about civic engagement. Sorry, I know that's board comment. Um, first question I have is about, um, we had a committee several years ago, a task force about character education. And I was wondering um, how is character education embedded? If you could answer what happened with the results of that task force. So um, in the report, there is a link to, and it, the, um, just for community and those watching on live stream, there is a report in the um, board docs category. It's 20 some pages, so again, on the, your next snow day, you'll have lots of, lots of reading. Um, there is a link to, it's called curriculum document process. And so if you look at that curriculum document process, we have identified standards in three areas. And I'm gonna ask Dr. Dennis to specifically talk about the cornerstone standards, which addresses your question. Thank you. Priority standards, there are really three levels or three components of that. The priority one standards are really the primary focus of what I was talking about here. Uh, those are the focus for our academic skills and, and uh, content. Priority two supports that, but the, the third category is our cornerstone, which are our character development, our character education, our, our um, digital citizenship, all of those other soft skills kind of. Um, and so the, the task force that you referred to, I, it came up with three really three areas of focus, uh, respect, responsibility, and resilience. Uh, we've put together a cadre of teachers that is using that as a foundation point to help develop. The question is, how do we, do we take that and embed it into our curriculum? That's the focus of this cadre, and it's really just beginning its work right now. Thank you. Mrs. Zila and I um, were on that task force, so I'm, I'm thankful for that information. Thank you. Um, Darren, real quick, There's how many teachers are on that cadre? Representative yeah. of K-12 and all five feeders? K-12, lots of different um, subject areas, uh, social workers, counselors, principals, um, all, f all feeder patterns. Great. Please go ahead. Are you said all right? Um, I was really excited uh, when Dr. Neal was talking about the CTE initiatives, and um, I wanted to highlight that a little bit because I've had many people um, in my community, I live in Shawnee, I've had many people coming up to me, employers, saying that we don't have um, people ready to go out of high school for mechanical, for um, different types of, of uh, welders, et cetera. They don't have that highly skilled labor force. And um, I know that we're working with Johnson County Community College and other um, school districts in the area. Can you expand? on that just a little bit about what we're doing with other school districts specifically? I cannot talk about specifically what we're doing with other school districts, but Christy might be able to. Um. So there's continued conversations that initiated with the superintendents um, starting last year and I believe are continuing about how do we share resources and not reinvent the wheel. So those conversations are continuing, but what I can share is there's a lot of uh, collaboration uh, across our district. So we do have students that come to us and participate in our, our career programs that we offer that are unique and not in other districts, and we have done that for a number of years. Um, some of those key areas that are on that slide, like HVAC, um, advanced manufacturing, those are communications and uh, that are happening across our metro that um, some of the work that is happening through Grad Force KC and Mark 
that's supporting research and also bringing resources to us as school districts and bringing those players together so that we can understand how we best work together and not replicating because they are expensive programs but then communicating what we can do to support our learners and sharing those resources still happening and I would add two things to that as well um, in addition to other school districts we're having conversations with vendors to um, for example, we've had a sit down at the table conversation with Train on multiple occasions to look at HVAC, an HVAC program. We have toured other HVAC programs to see. So we're having conversations with vendors. Um, obviously, to put those programs in are, are big dollars for a school district. So looking for community partners, business partners to help support that. Additionally, at the December meeting, we will be giving a CTE root data report. Oh, and so um, we'll try to answer some more of those questions. Uh, Dr. Flurry will be here, who's now the principal of the CTE programs, and he'll be able to answer a lot of those questions at the December when we give that data report. Great. Thank you. Dr. Uh, I might briefly add, you know, the Johnson County superintendents are a very collaborative group, mm -hmm. and I think we're all facing the same challenges in terms of trying to get great opportunities in front of students in ways that they can both access them and uh, also uh, can afford them. I mean, accessibility is certainly not just paying for a program, but it's also getting to a program. For example, it's at Johnson County Community College. And for some learners, that's, that's a barrier. Mm -hmm. So we're trying to figure out how to overcome that barrier. But an even bigger barrier for a lot of high school kids seem to be that they really like their high school, and they like to stay at their high school. They don't necessarily want to leave the high school for part of a day to go and access some of these really high-quality programs that are available, um, whether it's in other high schools or at Johnson County Community College. So that's something I think we'll have to work probably with through our strategic planning process, but mm -hmm. also with uh, site councils and importantly with students mm -hmm. to get their thoughts on what are, the, what are the barriers to them getting involved in some of these programs how can we reduce those barriers and make sure that uh, our students are taking, access, uh, taking the opportunities that are given to them to access those, uh, those programs? Dr. Sinclair. Okay, so um, I had kind of two questions. Um, so one, I'm just trying to make sure, or just trying to see if I understand the um, academic program evaluation reports. So I know you probably prepared this a, a while ago. But that report that's linked, it has area focuses. And so one of them is expanded learning opportunities that you referenced. So there's like nine um, focus areas, areas of focus. So my assumption is that that maybe came out of the KISA strategic kind of planning process. Actually, that, actually is that, that, that came out of the original strategic plan of 2014. That's I the, took that straight out of strategic planning okay, from so 2014. That's the original strategic it plan. And, and, then, and keep in mind that those nine areas that are listed there are common threads through all of the all of these areas. All of those areas. Expanded learning opportunities are in not just the academic. Okay, and so the, the 20 academic goals, then I was trying to see how they aligned with the areas of focus. So, so they're kind of... Um, and, and there could only be maybe one that would, would pertain to that. Now. Or opportunities, expanded learning opportunities could cross, well, 
It probably or some of the outcome goals. Yeah, there were a number of them that were looking at expanding learning opportunities. And in that particular okay. one, they're probably in all at least six of those seven yeah. areas. Okay. All right. I was just trying to see how it how that fit together. Um, okay. Um, thank you. So that was one of trying okay. to help me understand the just the data we have, and then the presentation. Today, to me, really, um, I really think about kind of what I hear is there's so many layers, right? There's so many layers of detail and, and responsibilities on our classroom teachers and just kind of the instructional piece. Um, but through the work of the original strategic planning process and, and the accreditation piece where we're going, um, I hear two pieces of um, realigning um, to uh, really focus on what our learning goals are and then putting those outcome evaluation component in place in relation to our learning goals. And so we're kind of doing multiple things at once. We have a strategic planning process in place, but yet we're also identifying those. Jump in any time. <laughs> we're trying to identify our priority standards. Um, as well as putting those outcome measures in place. So we might not have all the data that we want, but we're gonna start with what we have and identify where those gaps might be and where we need to build in um, those points of understanding, those points of evaluation so that we have a better idea of whether we're achieving our goals or not. Absolutely, you're right on, okay. yes. Okay, I'm gonna bright red yet. <laughs> so, okay, so, so a I'm year. just trying to understand the big picture here. Take me at the thirty thousand foot level. Sure. So the good news is that a year from now, or if we've gone through this cycle of, we're we're, we're peeling back the onion, aren't we? Okay. We've looked at we've looked at multiple data points. We'll continue to look at additional data and research. Um, it's taking us time because it's not data we've looked at before. So we're having to go in and really create those data looks. Mm -hmm. And as soon as we're getting them put together, we're getting them to you, we're getting them to principals, we're gonna give them to teachers, parents, and all of this helps to inform the strategic planning process, not just this year, but for the long term. Because continuous improvement is about working from research and data to understand where you're at, having a clear vision on where you wanna go, and then using that data research and kind of the collective wisdom of all of us to help our kids get there. I have to ask this, by the way. I don't need to mm -hmm. take the board's time, but how many of you have first graders right now? How many have first graders? Anyone in first grade? Okay, great. Class of 2030, right? We hope, right? That's a go. <laughs> so everything that we're doing is designed to make sure that the first graders of today are success ready graduates in 2030. That matters. It also matters for the class of 2019. Mm -hmm. So we're not looking past you know, where we are currently. Mm -hmm. But uh, we know we have disparity in our data. We know that we have systems that are still being formulated to support the learning process. We've got lots of thought to do around the use of digital devices, uh, use of a common curriculum, mm -hmm. But importantly, how do we get kids to those outcomes that matter for their life, mm -hmm. that are foundational to their future success? And so that's, that's 
These were in the beginning phases of starting to do that. Building on lots of strength, by the way. I do think it's important too to just recognize the work of this strategic plan from 2014 because while we haven't really been talking about it a lot, behind the scenes so many amazing things are happening as a result of that plan. Um, and, and things that aren't in the academic portion that I can talk about specifically are you know, the upgrades of our media centers. Um, the aquatic center, I mean, the bond issue that has built all these amazing new elementary schools that we have, the security updates, all of those things were part of the strategic plan that has made such amazing progress behind the scenes. So I think it's important to know where you've been, to know where you need to go. So to recognize the work of this strategic plan, because a, a lot of, I mean, for those of you that haven't seen the 20 goals in the, in the report, there's been some amazing things accomplished mm-hmm. in those 20, just the academic portion. For example, and this one just came to me, but the expanded learning opportunity of free all-day kindergarten for kids. I mean, that was one of the goals there. And if you look at the percentages of kindergartners that are going all day now compared to the percentage of kindergartners that were going all day in 2014, that's a significant um, achievement that we need to be very proud of in in the Shawnee Mission School District. So in looking at that report, the curriculum development process has come out of that. All of the curriculum maps that are now completed K-12 have come out of the strategic plan. So I think to know, I mean, it's kind of the concept of history, right? You have to know where you've been to know where you're going. So this tells us where we've been. Um, KISA helps us, give us a vehicle to know where we're going. Uh, We do have to come up with two specific goals in regards to KISA by the end of the school year. Um, They don't have to be like written in SMART goals specific, but we have to have a general idea of where we're going. So the work that the KISA committee uh, has done and will continue to do and the building um, leadership teams have done and will continue to do will lead us to those two important things that are around responsive culture and relationships and that will help drive the strategic planning steering committee where we're headed for the future. Hopefully that helps. It does. Thank you. Questions? Uh, Mrs. Elsie. I had a couple of questions about curriculum. And it could be because I don't understand exactly everything that was presented in this report. Um, but I know like when we approved the purchase of the high school math curriculum just a few months ago, we had a presentation that was provided by the educators who had got together to evaluate the various curriculums that were on the market and how they came to the conclusion that the one that we purchased was the right fit for us. And so I guess I'm curious as to how we move forward with that process with purchasing of other curriculums and how that relates in here because I get, there was a small section where it just said we will we'll collaborate to develop comprehensive curriculum models for all grade levels and I wasn't certain because we have engaged New York as our curriculum right now for the elementary level what the process was to select engage New York and would we be revisiting that process as we move forward like how does that how does that get evaluated? Okay, I want to clarify one thing. We have engaged New York as our resource. Okay. So our curriculum is actually the Kansas State Standards. Excellent. And then we have a local curriculum that we have developed as a result of those standards. So we've prioritized them in Priority 1, Priority 2. Engage is just the resource that helps get us there. Same thing with Big Ideas 712. We use that as a resource to meet the standards, which is ultimately our local curriculum. So will we reevaluate it? Absolutely. I mean, curriculum development is ongoing. 
it's never ending. It's an, it's an ongoing cycle. And um, as any time the state does something in regards to uh, development with state standards, then we have to go back to our maps and say, are we aligned? What do we have to change? And oftentimes we do have to change. We currently have a 712 ELA curriculum adoption team in working right now and looking at a new resource for 712. Um, will we be looking at K-6 math anytime soon? Probably not unless there's a standards change at the state level. And Darren, what can you add? I, I think that covered it uh, well. There is a, a process uh, where we get input from staff uh, and that's the process that's being used with 712 ELA right now. And was that process used when Engage New York was selected? It was. And Erin, anything you want to add in regards to that process? Uh, all of our curricular adoptions uh, we have a team of teachers who uh, are part of what we call our curriculum cadre. So at the elementary level, the middle level, and the high school level, those teachers look at different instructional resources. They use evaluation tools to um, essentially report their findings in terms of the quality, um, the efficiency, and the effectiveness of those resources. And then ultimately they select a resource that they feel like they'd like to recommend to the Board of Education. Was cost a consideration when Engage New York was selected? I'll address you. So, um, and Christy, you may have to jump in a little bit here because this was in a transition period, but at the time um, Engage New York was chosen, we did not have a significant budget for a curriculum adoption. It, because Eureka Math is the one that comes with more of the manipul manipulatives, am I, is that, Engage is like the um, introductory program, the freer program, and then Eureka, if you purchase it, it comes with additional things? Eureka is the published version of Engage New York. And there is not a significant cost for those curriculum for those curriculum materials. You, you're primarily paying for professional learning and the manipulatives. Okay, and then I just had one more question. Um, I noticed, I forget which paragraph it was in, but there was a discussion about the um, Daggett Model Schools program, and we are no longer participating in that. That is correct. formally. Okay, T when did we stop participating in that? I'm just ready. formally. Yeah. This last year, last year. We, didn't, we didn't see anybody in summer before last year. So 18 months, the last 18 months. Thank you. Mrs. Goodman. Um, thank you. Um, I just had a really quick question. Thank you for this report, and thank you for your presentation tonight. Um, appreciate it. Um, and also, there's a 24-page report that we all received, and I believe you mentioned that it was going to be out on the website. And one thing I wanted to say, too, you, you were talking about the strategic plan. And Jumpstart is the one thing that just the numbers in Jumpstart just jump out to me when I see the jump in that. Not only do we have more kids uh, in, you know, more students in kindergarten going full day, but the Jumpstart numbers from 2014, three sites, 46 kids, to 2018, 20 sites, 348 kids. That's it's had to have made a significant difference in our, these kindergartners' lives. I mean, I'm sure getting them into school and getting them, um, getting, giving them that, that Jumpstart. I think it's fabulous. So. Well, it's interesting that you bring that up because um, in regards to our future focus where we talk about um, looking for, um, evaluate our pre-K-12 funding sources. So for both Jumpstart and maybe just Jumpstart, we had a significant grant 
that provided that expanded opportunity and that grant has now um, gone away. And so that is something we're going to have to really look for for 1920. In addition, um, Title I has really supported Jumpstart in the, in the past and Title I funds are also um, shrinking. So with those two things impacting, we, we will have to look for additional funding for Jumpstart. And that's just one example of um, that particular future focus. But you're right. I mean, Jumpstart's been a great model for our kids, but it is something that we're going to have to continue to look for additional funding. I know the funders. Education Foundation had been they did fund funding, some. funding mm -hmm. that too. So. But the grant was significant. Hundreds, $200,000, thousand, three hundred, three hundred thousand $300,000. Mm -hmm. And it has expired. Well, hopefully we'll hear good news soon that we found other we're funding hopeful. sources. But I would, um, anyone that's interested, this 24-page, it's very informational, and thank you for putting all this together, this information, because it's got um, other test data for us, too, in there, the map data from... All of our academic data is there. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Mac. Um, just kind of a follow-up. Erin kind of um, answered, at least in part, and I know you all agree with me that one of our biggest strengths are our teachers. Um, and all of you are former teachers, I believe, and you all have done an outstanding job. I, I totally agree. Um, I heard, and, and Dr. Fulton has always talked about um, systems. We want continuous improvement, systems in place, and we're going to go from the bottom up. So my question is, um, what opportunities do teachers have in putting this together? Erin basically said curriculum cadres. What other opportunities have our teachers had for input in this overall academic plan for our district? I can't speak to the input um, going into the 2014 strategic plan, but as far as input in curriculum development, uh, resource selection, RTI, um, piloting materials. yes, piloting materials. Um, all we have we have cadres for all of those things. Teacher opportunities. Thank you. Thank you. Any other board members with questions? Thank you Thank very much. You. Very Thank informational. We appreciate it. With that, we move on to item 3.02, and that's our legislative update. Dr. Fulton, do you want to invite our guests forward? Yes, Dr. Stewart Little. Oh, Dr. Stewart Little is going to come up and give us an, a legislative update and also talk about our legislative priorities for the year ahead. Thank you. Good evening. Uh, I'm happy to be here. Um, I'll be mindful of your time that you've used and that you have still to go and, and briefly a couple of legislative issues to hit on and then kind of go over uh, briefly some, some uh, suggested changes to the legislative platform. Uh, after sitting here this evening, I, I, it's rare that I think I want to get back to Topeka where the issues are simpler and easier to follow. You're dealing with some very complex things here. So um, I would note a couple of issues. Uh, number one, that, uh, when I was here on November 12th, gave you a legislative update and talked about, elect about election outcome. The uh, 2019 legislative leadership will be selected a week from today in, in Topeka. The House and the Senate will go back there and be electing new leaders which will have an impact, of course, on committee assignments, who are chairs of committees, what committees folks are going to be on. So that's something that we'll be watching. As I described to you the last time, there's a, about a third of both of the House education committees are gone, and those are uh, things that we'll be watching closely to, to see that some more of our members of our delegation get on those committees. I would also mention we are going to have four new 
House members uh, when we when they show up uh, next Monday and then when the session begins. And so we're going to be doing some out, outreach to them. I'm here today to hit real quickly tonight uh, to kind of have the first conversation with you all after you previously had read through the platform and saw the things that were in the legislative platform. On the 13th of uh, November, we got together a group of you all and the administration and, and talked through the legislative uh, agenda um, platform. And there were 10 items on the platform that, that had been there from last year. And the, the result of that conversation were three suggested changes and then three things for you all to consider as additions. And so I'll just hit those real quickly as to what those, those, those changes are. Uh, the first one had to do with a statement on the platform concerning um, increasing funding for access to behavioral health services and during the course of our conversation the line that was suggested that defining behavioral health was uh, not broadly inclusive enough to include mental health so the language has been changed to say uh, uh, support increased funding and, and increased access to mental health and behavioral health services and we'd stopped it at services but we added four students and families making this a broader as a community uh, broader community conceived issue that was one of the changes that uh, that is suggested for you all to consider when you 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 work this as your um, platform the second change was the uh, language that said oppose any current or future legislation that directs public funds to private education and through the course of the conversation uh, the language that you'll have to consider will instead of saying don't uh, don't uh, oppose any change to what we already have it will say support legislation to repeal or reduce the private education tuition tax credit program and oppose vouchers or similar programs so rather than not expanding anymore, it's be seeking to uh, repeal or reduce that program. The last change that's an existing item in your platform was the language that said oppose efforts to amend the Kansas Constitution to potentially reduce the state and local commitment to make suitable provisions for the finance of education for all students in the state of Kansas. And of course, this was going into last legislative session we were talking about you don't change the definition of suitability, but of course the constitutional amendment that came out of the House Judiciary Committee didn't do that. It separated it and had uh, had the the Supreme Court making having the authority to make uh, decisions with regard to to equity, but the adequacy would remain uh, the authority of the legislature. So that language, in, in some ways, was outdated. But also there was uh, some desire to reference what is essentially the constitutional authority there. And so the suggested change to that is going to say protect the authority of the Kansas Constitution that ensures suitable provisions for the equitable and adequate finance of education for all students in Kansas. So it, it rather than, than being uh, trying to be too clever about naming exactly specifically what we don't want someone to do to the Constitution is leave the Constitution alone. The court has interpreted it and let's leave it at that. Um, three items that you asked to, to have some suggestions for consideration on were, uh, I would add, one of them is related to charter schools, the second one is related to grading schools, and the third would be an, to address the issue of the, the 2018 Gannon decision and whether money should be added back uh, into for inflation. So what you'll have to consider when you dig through the platform, the first new one will say support the constitutionally delegated and statutorily authorized powers granted 
granted to local boards to approve charter schools and require, require charter schools to operate with the same requirements as public schools. So that's being one to attempt to address direct charter schools and, and I appreciate the input many of you gave to, to identify those, the, the authority underlying these. That's very helpful. The second item would be support the constitutional authority of the State Board of Education and the delegated and statutorily authorized powers granted to local elected school boards in conjunction with legislative oversight to adequately measure student achievement and educational success. Grading schools and districts based on measures such as standardized tests or other, other static measures do not accurately reflect performance. And this is an attempt to get out in front of some legislation that may try to grade and evaluate schools based on those measures. It's happened in some other states. And lastly, the other one would be support a response to the Gannon decision of 2018 that addresses the remaining court concerns that adequacy will require additional resources to address inflationary increases from prior year funding. And of course, this is the principle of the response to Gannon that the legislature passed was to go back to the last time the formula was um, was adequately funded and then build from that over five years and the court said, yeah, that's a good idea, but you skipped about five years in, in the middle there where you need to have inflation added into that. So that's what the legislature will be faced with. So that, that's the, after we had the chance to meet and talk through that, those are the suggested amendments to the, the platform that uh, when you all are ready to work through that, I'll be happy to be of any assistance I can. Thank you for that summary and also thank you to the four board members who participated in that uh, quickly pulled together committee to put together this uh, updated. We literally discussed it last meeting and you've met in between so I appreciate that. That's fast work. With that, any questions? Dr. Sinclair. Um, ooh, Dr. Little, uh, I had, um, appreciate the, um, I can recap from the meeting. Um, I had two, I had two other kind of questions about um, one, Part of the discussion was about, in that workshop, was about having um, uh, proactive language kind of starting each statement with the word support rather than an oppositional kind of framework. So that just leaves one um, stranded uh, platform, uh, number seven, oppose unfunded mandates by local and state government. So I don't know if it's worth trying to put that one also into the affirmative. Did you mention that? Uh, that well, I don't recall us having that in the conversation okay. in in the meeting, okay. and, and I didn't and I okay. didn't go. If that was something I missed, I apologize. And I don't know why I'm assuming that you are the one responsible for keeping all the notes either. So my apologies. But that was one I thought we had discussed. So I'm, I think it's worth just coming up with a group. Again, I'm putting you on the spot. I don't know why. No, I'm happy to do that. And when I when I sent it back to everyone for for after yeah. after the meeting, I asked if 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 I missed something, please let me know. So I, I appreciate knowing that. Yeah. Okay. So I don't know if that's something that we want to consider as a group. Um, and then um, in the changes that were made last year, there was some recognition to our. Um, educators and district staff and that even opening statement about the district will advocate for all students, teachers, and district. And so we were um, having, um, I know in conversations I've had with folks of how do we really recognize our um, educators uh, and, and, and support staff in the district in the language in, in our um, platform. And so I don't know if it's worth also exploring something to that effect. Um, 
and I was looking at the KASB, the Kansas Association of School Boards, their language around that. And one of the year one priorities there, looking at ways to um, attract ret and retain qualified and effective educators and support staff. So I had just tinkered with a little language around that, which might be something we want to consider that might include um, encouraging the legislature to address the unfunded mandates around capers and kind of other elements. So. Yeah. You want to consider, Mrs. May. Yeah, just to tag along to that, I, I, Dr. Ath, I think you were the one who talked about. Um, uh, we definitely wanted to have full funding of Capers get back on board with that, but to also go back to the former system um, for calculating Capers, we had that discussion as well, and I don't see that reflected in what you've said. I don't know. Oh. We want do, to do, help do, remember Mrs. that. Mrs. Owsley, Mrs. Zila, do you remember that part of the conversation? If you could help me out, please. Yeah, <laughs> yes. I, I don't remember exactly that we wanted to, to put that into our our platform as well. I think that's... I know we discussed the funding, fully funding capers, and then there was discussion about improving the system and going back to where it was. Okay, but I don't know if we came down with officially benefits. including that. Um, and I was searching for the email sent out with the changes, but I don't think I got it, so I'm... I was going to pull it up and look at it, but I don't think <laughs> we certainly we certainly can wordsmith something along the line of capers because capers has changed drastically over the last three years uh, and what it offers new teachers coming in to to our profession uh, as opposed to what capers presented our teachers before what our our more veteran teachers all the way back to 1992. So. Um, it's, if it's of interest to the board, we certainly can wordsmith something along that line to uh, be positive and uh, ask our legislature to to consider revisiting that in the future because I think it certainly would have some ram, uh, important ramifications for our teachers, particularly our young teachers right now. And so, Board Member Mack is where you aren't you losing your mind. I, <laughs> I did take notes and recall that conversation. That may have been one of the things that there was less cohesion, coherency coming out as yes, this is what we say. I do have notes on that. So, I think that was probably more me coming out than the four board members that were there. Um, but so it was part of our discussion right. on And this K is your yeah. legislative platform. Yeah. Board members. I would just make a comment yes, that I, th I, I like that we are changing the verbiage and the last one that, that Mary brought up there as far as you know opposing things rather than supporting things. I think supporting is a much more positive way to go about with that and hopefully we'll give something in hand for our legislators to work with. Great. Well, thank you for your work on this as a reminder to everyone. So we have additional meeting. Our next meeting is December 17th. At that point, we will take formal action to adopt the platform for 2019. Um, and then we'll have it in time to deliver to our legislators in various meetings, one-on-ones, and certainly when they begin in January. Two additional comments to, to give it all clarity. So this weekend, the Kansas Association of School Boards, KSB, will be adopting the legislative platform for the state, meaning all the school districts. We as a board of the Shawnee Mission District also put together a platform which mirrors much of it, but we lift up our own priorities. Um, this weekend, we are gathering the six school districts of Johnson County to also put together perhaps some priorities to lift up in the legislative process as well. That meeting will take place this Sunday at 1215. Dr. Little, I hope you have that on your calendar. Um, we'll be meeting at the Overland Park Sheraton with the six other 
school districts uh, to have this conversation as well to really get succinct about legislative platform priorities for the, for the year. We as a board are asked to bring two of our top priorities to that discussion with the six other or five other districts. So think about that and then um, if you can share those with Dr. Sinclair so that we can synthesize uh, two top priorities that we want to lift up in a conversation with our fellow board uh, boards from the other five districts in Shawnee Mission. So I want to give that some clarity. There's three moving parts all taking place at the same time, but it is that time of year. Thank you very much for your work. With that, we'll move on to uh, item or section four, which is the consent agenda. I'll first see if any board member would like to remove anything from uh, today's presented consent agenda. Seeing none, I'll seek a motion to approve. Move approval. Thank you, Mrs. Goodburn. Second. Thank you, Mrs. Zila. All those in favor of approving tonight's consent agenda, please say aye. 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 Those opposed, nay. And that passes 7-0. That moves us out down to uh, item six, actually which is board comments for this evening. Board members have any comments they'd like to share? I've been commenting a lot. No, go, ahead. go ahead, Mrs. Mack. <laughs> um, I just want to say the Bistro, thank you for the fundraiser. They made over $10,000, which is just amazing. And the food was fabulous. I really appreciated the help. And I noted the editor-in-chief of the Shawnee Mission North um, newspaper is here tonight. Thank you for sending this to us. I would love to get this from all of the high schools. Um, they're really, they, you guys really do a great job, and congratulations on all your awards. Other board members with comments? Yes, Reverend Guy. Um, you've heard us mention several times tonight the Kansas Association of School Boards. They um, have a website and an email list, and I encourage you to uh, check them out because they keep a very close eye on educational issues that specifically affect the children of Kansas. And today they sent out an action alert, and I just want to read you part of it because I know that many of you are uh, engaged in educational issues and uh, just want to make you aware of this. It reads, KASB is urging the Department of Homeland Security to withdraw a notice of proposed rulemaking that could cause thousands of Kansas school children to lose access to health care, nutrition, and other programs damaging their ability to learn. And um, it goes on to say, the inadmissibility on public charge grounds proposed rule, this is the, the rule change being proposed um, by Department, uh, Department of Homeland Security, is designed to discourage legally authorized immigrants who are seeking legal permanent resident or green card status from applying for programs like Medicaid, CHIP, SNAP, and some housing assistance programs. Doing so could cause them to be classified as a public charge. And it says, although the proposed rule may on the surface be assumed to be an attempt to curb illegal immigration, in its current form, the proposal has a much broader effect because its provisions also encompass legal immigrants living in the United States, including students who were born in the United States to immigrant parents. Um, there is a limited opportunity for people to provide feedback on this proposal, and KASB has a link to where you can comment, but comments will be closed on the <coughs> 10th, which will be before our next board meeting. So I wanted to raise this issue with you, ask you to uh, go to KASB to learn more if you feel so led to, um, to comment, leave a public comment, letting them know how you feel about these proposed changes and um, just, just get educated and speak up as you feel led to uh, on behalf of, of the children of the state of Kansas and, and specifically in our district as well. Thank you. The board member comments. Mrs. Owsley. Um, 
Well, I wanted to thank everybody who came tonight and provided us with input. It's appreciated. I know everybody here really cares about their kids and the kids of the district and the success of the district. And we welcome your comments and we're glad you were here. Um, and then unrelated to that or to the meeting in general, on uh, Saturday, December 8th, there is a climate solutions workshop for local elected. So that would include board members or um, city council members or trustees or commissioners um, on working to implement policy at the local level to draw down um, carbon um, in line with the IPCC report that came out just I think a few weeks ago, but so much has happened in the last few weeks, it seems like a lifetime ago, um, where we have to get to net carbon zero basically within the next 12 years. So the same time that those first graders right now are graduating in 2030, we have to be at net carbon zero if we want to ensure that we have a habitable planet for them to you know, raise the next generation. Um, and so uh, some, some local electeds put together this workshop and have invited the authors of Drawdown to come and present what you can do locally with local initiatives. And so if there are any other local electeds following along with this meeting at home and who would like to come out, you can register. Um, actually, I think Dr. Sinclair retweeted the information on the seminar recently, so you can find it on her Twitter page. Um, and Mayor uh, Mike Kelly and Roland Park is helping to organize and put together so you can reach out to him for additional information. And that's it. Thank you so much. Any other board members? Well, my wrap-up would be quick comments. Uh, that Thank you. Thank you for coming forward today. We appreciate the comments that were shared by those that uh, came and spoke at our public comments today. I want to share on behalf of the entire board, it's very important to us that we have continued opportunities to engage with the public in many ways. And that's part of the work that we're doing on some of these task forces you were just heard about. Uh, we're creating this uh, whole system where we're going to have patron groups, uh, student groups, ways to engage beyond just the seven of us. We certainly want to be very involved, but with 27,000 students in a very large district with over 40 buildings. Um, we're we're kind of limited as volunteers, but we're trying to do the best we can. But I think it's incumbent upon us to put together systems that all patrons feel like they can be best heard and engage in the process. Because in the end, all 27 of those students are very important to us. And we really, we really work towards that goal. Uh, two last things. Do we have any students that are here on behalf of a government class or some other requirement that uh, had them sit through this? It's a snow day. No <laughs> students here. I was looking forward to, re to honoring a resourceful oh. student who said, I'm going to use this day to actually take some. She's here. <laughs> <laughs> um, as I said earlier, our next meeting is December 10th. I also want to let you know that the board is meeting on December. I'm sorry, it's December 17th. Thank you. <laughs> December 10th is the day of which we are going to meet as a second time as a board retreat, again, to work on the very items that we were just talking about. With that, I'll turn to Mrs. Owsley for a motion. I move the board recess to executive session in order to discuss personnel issues pursuant to the non-elected personnel exception under COMA, and the board will reconvene at, um, do we need 30 minutes or 45 minutes? 45? So we will reconvene at 8.45, and no further business will be conducted. With a five-minute gap. For a break, yes. Thank you. It's been moved and seconded. All those in board members in approval, so I'm saying aye. I seconded. I seconded. Sorry, my microphone was off. Aye. All those in favor, please say aye. 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 All those opposed, nay. Thank you. We are adjourned uh, to executive session. There will be no business afterwards. Thank you.